we are in the loop travel narrative. And where we are is conflict with the Pharisees over money. And we got all the way to 12.8, I believe, before we stopped. So we're, and I sort of want to back up and give you a, a little overview before we charge on. So if, if you back up to Luke 11.37, what you have there is woes to the Pharisees and the lawyers. And, of course, you all know, you've been around this long enough, that the Pharisees and the lawyers represent the power structure in Israel at the time that Yeshua was alive. Actually, he's still alive at the time he was walking around Jerusalem. So the Pharisees and the lawyers represent the power structure. And he proceeds then to take a stripe off of both of them. He first off goes after the Pharisees, and then the lawyer says, wait a minute, teacher, you sort of insulted us too. So he turns around and makes a complete job of it, and really insults them. So chapter 12 then is turning away from the Pharisees and the scribes, who he was talking to directly, and so now what he's doing is he is talking to people around him, and he's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes. So all this first 34 verses of chapter 12 then are by way of talking to the people around him about the Pharisees and the scribes who he has just finished taking a stripe off of. And so the first thing he says, and we went through this last time, so I'm not going to go through it all again. At the beginning, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In fact, let's read it. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. We're talking hypocrisy because it is the case that the scribes and the Pharisees say one thing and do something else. And as he said about the scribes earlier on, or the lawyers, they hold the key to the kingdom. In other words, they're the ones that are the repository of the scriptures. They keep them. So they have access. That's what a key represents, is access. So they have access to the scriptures. And what they do is they don't go in themselves, plus they use their access to keep other people out. And what they've done is they have put other requirements on people that are not strictly scriptural, but since they have the text, they've said, all right, the text say you should do this, and they lay out all these rules. So what they've done is they've kept the lay people out. They have not gone in themselves, and they have laid heavy burdens on people, but they should know better because they do have the books, and they are able to read them. So then we go down to verse 4. I'm in Luke 12, 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. So in context, then, who is he telling them not to be afraid of? The Pharisees and the scribes, or the lawyers. So this is in context, then, of the Pharisees and the lawyers representing the local power structure are groups of people whom most people are afraid of. One of the things that happens, and the Christian church did this up until the 15th, 16th century, it used to be a crime punishable by death to have your own copy of the Bible. And one of the things that happened around the time of Luther is he translated the Bible himself. 
Uh, Tyndall translated the Bible. Several people translated the Bible, and they were trying to get it published in the vernacular so that common people could read it. And what happened is, if you got caught with one of those, they killed you. And the reason for that is, having control of the scriptures represents power. In other words, if you have to come to me and ask me what the Bible says and what my interpretation of the Bible is, then I have power over you because I'm the one you got to come to. And furthermore, I also get to then say, well, you're not doing it right. You're apostate. And at various times and various places, that can get you burned at the stake. So the idea that the scribes and the Pharisees who have access to the scriptures themselves are holding these things to themselves and are setting themselves up as arbiters of what is and what is not permissible is for them a source of power. And so what Yeshua is saying is, don't be afraid of the people who can only kill your body. What you really want to be afraid of is the one who, after killing your body, can consign you to hell, which is not the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, having said that, at various times and in various places in Christianity, churchmen have arrogated to themselves the ability to do that. They have tried to convince people that they have the ability and the authority to consign you either to heaven or to hell. And again, that's a source of power. Because if you got to come to me in order to get to heaven, I become somebody that is very powerful to you. And if you step out of line, if you believe that I have the authority to excommunicate you and send you to hell or something to that effect, then again, I become someone that you fear. So the idea that the scriptures confer power on people who are able to keep the written word secret is one of the things that Yeshua here is talking about. And he's specifically talking in terms of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's saying they're a bunch of hypocrites. They're holding the word away from you. Don't be afraid of them. What you need to be afraid of is the one who actually can consign you to hell, which is God. So the idea that you got some guy dressed up in a fancy robe who struts around and says that he is God's representative, that can be very intimidating, especially if he's got a strong personality. So what Yeshua is talking about in this first 34 verses of chapter 12 is in context of those guys. So let's go back to verse 4. I tell you, my friends, who's he speaking to here? His friends. Are the scribes and the Pharisees his friends? No, they're not. So I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed you, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What's the business with the sparrows here? I will suggest to you that in context, what it means is the Pharisees and the scribes are creating a hierarchy. And we're important, you're not. Furthermore, if you get in our way, we'll squash you because you're not important. You're not powerful, you're not important, we don't care about you. Well, actually, they do care about you, but only as a source of power. So as long as you're behaving yourself, paying your tithes, giving them due deference, all that kind of stuff, we like you just fine. Don't necessarily invite you to dinner, but we like you just fine. 
And what he's saying is in contrast to those people who simply regard you as a source of power and resources, God loves you. And I will suggest it's all in the context of the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So he's talking in the context of the lawyers and the Pharisees. And what are the lawyers and the Pharisees saying? What they're saying is this guy is nobody to pay attention to. You need to pay attention to us. It's like the priesthood today in any of the liturgical churches. In a liturgical church, Catholic, Episcopalian, Lutheran, so forth, the priest is an authority. He has or thinks he has authority to convert bread and wine into communion. So the idea here is that the priest represents himself as an authority who stands between you and God and has keys. In other words, he controls access to the things of God, in this case, communion. I don't happen to believe that that's biblically sound, which is why we don't do communion in that sense, just because I don't agree that only a Catholic priest or only a consecrated priest has authority to do that. Here, we're talking in the context of temple authority, religious authority, people who have the ability to look at you and say, you're doing wrong and get you stoned, or you're doing wrong and exclude you from religious practice. And what Yeshua is saying is don't pay any attention to them. What you want to do is pay attention to the one who has actual ultimate authority over you, and it ate them. So now we're down to verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, what I take that to mean, and I will tell you that there are a whole lot of people in the body of Christ that don't agree with me. What I take that to mean is there are a lot of people who have what I would call a worship relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who does not believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so they speak against the Son of Man, which is Yeshua. Understand that making this decision is way above my pay grade. I don't get to decide these things. But as I read this, if people who have a legitimate doubt as to whether the historical man, Yeshua, was in fact the Son of God, was in fact the Messiah of Israel, is in fact God himself, I don't believe they are denying the Holy Spirit. In other words, they have a relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They call on his name. They worship him. And at least from my perspective, thinking only logically, I think that they're probably fine. There are lots of people in Christendom who believe that the only way to come to God is through Yeshua, and you have to know Yeshua as a man personally. In other words, you have to acknowledge he is the one in order to get there. But understand that as I read the scriptures, it isn't quite so clear. The other part of that is, if as I am, you are Trinitarian, which is to say that you believe that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are three aspects of one being, then it isn't clear to me how worshiping God the Father as opposed to God the Son throws you out of the pool. The blood that he shed covers all sin, whether or not you happen to recognize that he is the one whose blood was shed. 
In other words, your sins are covered by the blood of Yeshua. And I don't know that you have to know that it was the blood of Yeshua in order to be covered. I don't believe in universal salvation. I do not believe in that. Not at all. I believe that you have to have a worship relationship with God. What isn't clear to me in Scripture is that you have to also worship Jesus. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has made himself known to us three ways. He's made himself known to us as a spirit. He's made himself known to us as the Son of Man, Yeshua. And he has also made himself known to us as what we call God the Father, Jehovah. All I'm saying is there's one God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As I read the scriptures, he's made himself known to us also as Yeshua, his son. And he's made himself known to us as a spirit, the Holy Spirit. And it's the same being. And so my particular understanding is that if you worship that being, you're fine. And coming back to chapter 10 in our current paragraph, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And the way I read that, or the, or the way I understand that, is there is one God. And if you know him via his Spirit as God the Father, even though you blaspheme against him as God the Son, you will be forgiven. So we're in Luke 12:11, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So this is in the context of the Pharisees and the lawyers who have the authority to do things like throw them out of the synagogue or bring them in and have them beaten. They have secular power over you. And what Yeshua is saying is don't worry about that. Down to verse 13 now. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, why does he bring that up? The one that is talking to him wants his share, all of the prodigal son. And you all know the way it worked in Israel. The older son got a double portion, and typically the family stayed together. So the idea of one of the sons wanting to take his portion off, in fact, diminished the family. So the older brother, who is the leader of the family, would naturally resist giving the rest of his siblings their individual chunk of the property. Because to do that, as I say, it diminished the family as a whole. So what this guy is saying is, I want my share, make him give it to me. And Yeshua says, who made me a judge and so forth? But why is this story put here? It's in the context of the Pharisees who are setting themselves up as judges. That I am sure is true. But also it's in the context of the Pharisees are in love with money. In fact, when we get to the corresponding section in Luke 16, what it'll talk about is the Pharisees who love money. And what he's talking about in this whole riff is back in the context of the Pharisees who are the secular power authority in addition to being the religious power authority. So he's talking in terms of possessions, he's talking in terms of who's your authority, he's talking in terms of who you should be afraid of. So this is all in the context of that same riff. Back to verse 15 again. 
He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So I will suggest this is all in the context of the lawyers and the Pharisees. And what he's saying is, there is a tendency to seek sufficiency on earth so that you can take your leisure, your early retirement. And what he's saying is no. Now this is genealogy, I'm parenthesis. This is not what he's saying, this is what I think he's saying. And what he's saying here is, if God gives you a bumper crop so big that your barn can't hold it, then he has given it to you to do something with. He has not given it to you to finance the construction of a bigger barn. What this guy is doing when he gets the bumper crop is he is looking at it as, it's all for me. God has blessed me. I can store all this up and put my hands over my tummy, and I will be comfortable for many, many years to come. And what God says is, no, 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 no. That's not why I gave it to you. When you get a sudden windfall, one of the things that you should do is look around and see, why have I got this? Very unlikely that it's because you are some spiritual hotshot that God has decided to let retire. That's an unlikely reason. It could be for any number of reasons. I mean, obviously it doesn't say that. But the attitude this guy has is, it's mine. And God's attitude is, no, it's not. It's mine. And if you regard the stuff that I give you as yours exclusively, then you're making a spiritual mistake. He's not talking against prudence. One hopes that everybody here is saving up money for a rainy day, saving up money for retirement, saving up money to send his kids to college, or whatever it is you want to save up money for. That's prudent, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, God gives us a standard that we can go by. What's the standard? First 10% goes back to him some way. The next 10% goes to support yourself when you come up to worship God in your Feast of Ascent. And then there's a third 10% spread over seven years, and that goes to charity. So there is a standard on how much of that is yours and how much of that is simply given to you to be used. However, you may have been called to something special. All I'm doing is sort of giving you the baseline here. That's the baseline of where you ought to be. And if you get something special, you may be called to do something special. So the idea of saving it is not automatically bad. He's just talking in context of this guy whose attitude is, oh, wow, bumper crop, mine. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking against prudence or anything else. It's an attitude. So let's go to Luke 16, starting in verse 9. Now, the thing that's going to be just before this is the parable of the wicked manager, the guy that cheats his employer and so forth. And it is often taught that verse 9 which is, I tell you to make friends by means of unrighteous mammon, that that's part of the parable of the unjust steward. Bailey breaks it out as being part of the conflict with the Pharisees over money. I don't care which way you do it. I'm going to go with Bailey tonight just 
because, so I'm now in Luke 16:9, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So, unrighteous wealth. Look at the grammar here. Make friends for yourself. Okay, so the idea is you make friends so that those friends can receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, use the resources that you have been given here on earth with a view to making yourself friends in heaven so that when the wealth fails, the friends that you have made in heaven will receive you into eternal dwellings. You're down here. You got unrighteous mammon. Lots of it. So the question is, what do you do with it? What you do with the unrighteous mammon that you have down here is that you spend it with a perspective of gaining friends in heaven. And I think gaining friends in heaven is a metaphor for pleasing God. So when that mammon down here fails, or goes away, or is lost, or whatever, then God will receive you into an eternal dwelling because you have used the resources that he gave you down here in a way that's pleasing to him. This is often taught as a follow-on and a same subject as the unjust steward. Bailey doesn't bring it that way. Bailey looks at it as being in two different categories, and I think in that sense Bailey may be right. So I tend to think of unrighteous mammon in the same way I would think of profane mammon, which is to say the wealth of this world. That's what I think, but I'm not a Greek scholar. We're not going to go on tonight. We'll pick it up here next week.